Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good morning. Thanks. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate that. Did you, were you wearing a Falcons hat earlier and you changed to a Braves hat? No, but that'd be way cooler. Uh-huh. Well, the poet and essayist uh, T.S. Eliot once kind of claimed that characters in modern literature no longer have any sort of great sense of conviction. They're not animated by these great uh, desires or moral conflict or inspiration. Instead, characters in modern literature only have nervous breakdowns. And we know all about that because we live in a world that feels like it is coming apart at the seams as Rusty prayed. Uh, there are things that are happening in our world that highlight its fragility. People in their homes in Miami, there one moment, gone the next. People in hot air balloon in Albuquerque, New Mexico, out for a, a, a jaunt only to have it end in tragedy. Anxiety prescriptions were up 34% in this past year after rising over 300% in the last decade. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Sociologists will be unpacking the year that was for quite some time. Church leaders will be asking some them questions about what God was doing in the midst of that. And in all these things, we have learned what it's like to live out of control. And when you're not in control, it's hard to find productive action. Without productive action, all you can do is be anxious. But it's not the case that it's just that hard things were happening. It's that hard things were happening, and we were pretty much left on our own to deal with them. Social scientists estimate that the average person had 80% fewer social interactions last year than they did the year before. And that sense of knowing that you are with others is a major factor to our peace and our well-being. We need to know that we're not alone. That despite whatever storms and things that come to rock our lives to the core, that we are neither abandoned or alone. We're in a series of messages this summer on the fruit of the Spirit, these attributes of character that reflect the fullness of Christ in us, these these characters, these, these virtues that Jesus is developing in the midst of our lives, things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. And this morning, we are going to take a look at one of those. We're going to look at peace through the lens of a particular story of Jesus in which Jesus brings peace to his disciples, not by steering them away from the storm, but by being present to them and centering them on his presence in the midst of the storm. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to take a look at verses 35 through 41. Listen carefully, for this is God's word. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, Don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. 
Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that in the hearing of your word, you would speak into the deepest parts of our hearts. Speak your peace to us there. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, Mark describes what had been another long day in a long line of long days for Jesus. He and his disciples were out there meeting the needs of the crowds. He had been casting out demons, healing them of their diseases. And right before this scene, he spends the whole day out teaching through parables, talking about what the kingdom of God looks like. And the crowd got so big that he actually had to get into a boat on a lake and teach them as they sat there out on the shore side. So finally, exhausted, Jesus is ready for a break. And so he tells his disciples in evening time that it is time to just get away. Mark tells us that they took him as he was, which I think is probably spiritually and mentally exhausted, not even getting a chance to step back onto the shore, and they just leave. And so Jesus goes back to the stern of the boat, the spot that's usually reserved for the captain, and he just crashes, worn out by the crowds, worn out by their concerns. We all know what it's like to deal with a set of issues that come crowding in on us, right? Issues related to work or to school, issues that can easily get out of hand, whether they are related to health, family, or friends, the needs of small children, the needs of aging parents, a marriage that's in need of repair, the need to find new work, to discover the next chapter of life, or to pay for the chapter of life that you've just been living through. Needs like the car or the home that are always on the horizon, always crowding in at us. And one at a time, we can kind of deal with these things as they pop up. Or at least we can kind of swat them away like one giant game of whack-a-mole in our lives. But when they all come piling up at once... And we have to deal with them all at the same time, let alone stack those on top of the the constant parade of news headlines that seem to highlight the fragility of life. It's not hard to feel like what the cultural commentator Mark Sayers calls the ambient anxiety of modern life. With everything pressing in and anxiety starting to rise, we want nothing more than to take a page out of Jesus' book, just hit the eject button and move away from the crowding concerns, sailing away, going anywhere we can to get a moment's rest, a moment's peace. But then we find that it's always in those moments when we are at our most exhausted that we find out we are just at the starting line. 
Jesus and his disciples are at sea. The, star, the, the, the skies start to grow dark and threaten. The wind begins to howl and the, the waves begin to beat up against the hull of their boat. They are terrified that they are going to die. And just to kind of put this in context, even though Jesus has called among his disciples some very experienced fishermen who lived their life out on the sea, on the whole, Jewish people in the first century were not exactly in love with the ocean. For them, it had come to symbolize everything that was chaotic and evil, absolutely terrified of the sea. Everything that was unpredictable. It was a place where evil had sway, where, where chaos ruled the day, where darkness dwelled. If you take a jog throughout the Old Testament, you see even in the story of creation, that God brings order out of the chaos of the deep primal waters. The Israelites, they, they flee Egypt by passing through the waters of the Red Sea. Jonah gets engulfed by a storm because he is going the wrong way. The Psalms, they speak of a God who has the power to rule over even the seas. Job speaks of a Leviathan coming from the deep. Daniel, this weird book of apocalyptic literature, speaks of four beasts coming out of the ocean. And at the end of the Bible, when John the seer speaks of a new heaven and a new earth coming into, when all things meet their fullness, he speaks of a day when the sea will be no more. I got to tell you, that did not preach too well at the yacht club in Newport Beach. But the point is not that there's not going to be an ocean, or not that there's going to be, a, you know, no beach, you surfers, you know, you can, you can rest easy. The point is that there is no evil. There's no chaos, there's no disorder, no anarchy, no, no chaos. The powers and the principalities of darkness, those are the things that are put to end. And so to the ancient Near East, to just kind of put yourself in the mindset of this story, the sea was not a place to go on vacation. It was the place that was the border between order and chaos. And they're right out there in the middle of it. In 1986, there was a hull of a fishing boat that was found out in Galilee in the mud of the northwest a shore about five miles from Capernaum where this story is taking place and carbon dating puts it at about the first century but it also matches the diagram of a first century Galilean boat. Uh, it had about the capacity for 15 people and storms in Galilee they come up fast they come up furious and if you are out in the middle of one it is terrifying. All it is to say, you do not want to be in a hurricane in something like this. It will look like this after it's done. And so it's not hard to imagine the disciples just being all kinds of you know, frenetic with activity, running back and forth, doing everything they can to haul down the sails, to bail out the water, to steer into the wind. All the while, the skies are growing darker and the, the waves are getting higher. The wind is blowing more fiercely. It's as though for them, the forces of evil are unleashed. They are angry and they are threatening. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all their anxious doing, where do we find Jesus but asleep? Because that's what you do, right? It says a lot. I, I think 
you know, Jesus, he has been teaching all day. Now, you can actually believe me or not on this, but uh, I have this little fitness tracker. And uh, when I was at a church that had three services on a, on a Sunday, I would look down at my fitness tracker. And at the end of those three services, it was roughly the equivalent of four and a half miles of jogging. So it's tiring, right? But that's not the same thing I think that's going on with Jesus. He has been at this all day, and so sure, he is tired. He is exhausted from that. But I think the story is much more than that. Jesus was never in a hurry. He was at peace. He was confident in the presence and the nearness of the Father, and so he could be asleep. Disciples, on the other hand, they're an anxious wreck. They say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And that is the first of three really important questions that kind of come out of the text to us. Jesus, don't you care that we are sinking? Everyone here knows what it's like to ask that question. Maybe not at sea, but you know what it's like to have your head underwater. You know what it's like to have worry and anxiety at their peak. Cell phone rings and it's bad news. Really bad. The diagnosis is in and amid all of the the words that you didn't understand, there were two that you did and it's stage four. Or the text message that comes at 3 a.m. Can you come get me? I don't feel safe. I think my marriage is over. It's the meeting that ends with the news of a reorganization. You look outside and the sky gets really dark. The wind starts to pick up. The waters are pulling you under. You have arranged your life to steer clear of this kind of disaster. And so you look over at Jesus and the prayer just kind of falls out. Don't you care that I am drowning? We all know what it's like to ask that question. Don't you care that I'm out of work? Don't you care that my my marriage is not all that it can be? Don't you care if my kids know you? Don't you care about the ruling in court? Where are you? Why are you asleep? It's an important question the disciples are asking. Because they're not saying, hey, Jesus, could you do something about this? They're asking a question that cuts to the heart. They're asking, do you even care? I mean, they've been around Jesus long enough by this point to know what he can do. They've seen the healings. They've got the receipts. What they're asking is not, do you care about the world? They're asking, do you care about me? that's exactly the kind of thing that makes us anxious as well. It's that personal dimension that hits us the hardest. That's the place where we start to have the disconnect with grace. Of all the people who are close to me that have walked away from faith, it wasn't because they didn't think that Jesus cares about the raging storms that are going on in the world. They know that God cares about the the pandemic raging in Brazil. They they know God cares about human trafficking in the Philippines, about the tempests that flare up in Israel and Palestine. They don't have a disconnect with that, but when it comes to the storms in their own little boat, they're not sure Jesus wants to be woken up, and because they are experiencing storms, they assume that the answer is no, I don't care. But Mark tells us that Jesus, in response 
to his disciples. He gets up in the middle of the storm. In the midst of their anxiety, he says, peace, be still. And I hope you don't miss that, is that Jesus does not show that he is with his disciples by navigating around the storm or preventing it coming from them. He shows that he is with them by being present in the middle of it. And after he speaks those words, the second question from this passage comes out to us. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Faith isn't so much a matter of being blind to storms. It's a matter of building the resilience to know that Jesus is with you, to trust that he is with you when they come. The word that's used throughout the New Testament for faith is the word pistis, and it is best translated as trust. It's this kind of sense of you know, not being primarily about what we believe or, or even what we, what, what we know about the doctrines that we hold up. It's one thing to intellectually ascend to the idea that Jesus calmed the seas, but that is not actually the hard thing. It's not hard to believe that he did this. It's hard to believe for us sometimes that he still does this, that this is who he is. Believing that Jesus spoke peace to the raging sea is a different thing altogether from believing that he will speak peace into the sea and the storm in you. Faith isn't just about what we believe or what we doubt. It's a matter of where we place our trust. It's a matter of trusting that Jesus is with you, drawing you to his presence to the storms inside. It's actually possible to experience peace and joy in the midst of great upheaval when we know that we're not alone. This last week, I picked up a, a little book called Tribe. It was written in 2016 by a journalist named Sebastian Junger. Uh, it's, a sh it's a short book, easy read. And he tells numerous stories about the kind of close bonds that were created by these intense periods of struggle in human history, these times of hardship and danger, the kind of storms that have propped up in the world and affected people's lives. And it is this entirely counterintuitive thing. But during the Second World War, for example, the cities that reported the highest morale, the lowest rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide were actually the, the cities like Dresden that were hit the hardest by enemy bombs. Because in those cities, communities rallied together. And they were with one another. Hospitals in London during the worst of, of the raids there actually reported their lowest rates of mental patient occupancy. People who had once been in the mental hospital were suddenly driving ambulances to help others out. People actually got better when things got worse. And one of the stories that he told that stood out to me was of a woman uh, seen on this picture right here. Her name is Nijara uh, Akhmetasevic. I think I got that close. Each. Ah, I have to ask somebody who lived in Sarajevo how to pronounce this name. But Nijara, she, she grew up in Sarajevo during the Bosnian War of the 90s. 
And she describes this kind of community that popped up there when things were at their worst. There's constant years of artillery fire. And the, her family formed this co-op with 60 other families in the residential compound that was constantly being shelled by bombs. And, and in this place, they, they shared meals. They shared life with one another. She was given an egg for her 18th birthday, and she couldn't figure out how to split it among six people. And so she made pancakes so everybody could have a share. She describes how there was this whole youth culture that, that popped up underground. There were artists and punk rockers and poets, and deep bonds of community were formed in this place. And a few weeks into the siege, she was, uh, a shell came into her house and she was wounded. And so in the time of her recovery, she experienced this sense of togetherness with the people coming and meeting her needs and caring for her. And then six months later, her family defied all odds and got her evacuated into Italy. And so she was there in relative safety as a refugee. But she was so alone and so isolated that she couldn't stand it. And she actually went back into the war zone to be with her people. When she was asked by... A reporter, whether she had ultimately been happier during the war, she said, oh yeah, we were happiest then, and we laughed more. You talk with church leaders in areas of intense persecution, the, the type of community that forms, the, the way that Christ is present in community, bringing peace even in the midst of the struggle. Is, is palpable. And now, obviously, it is not the case that things are objectively better in the midst of great upheaval, but the upheaval changes us. And it's possible to grow and even flourish in the midst of the storm when we know that we are not alone. That's a promise that Jesus offers. It's not that he's going to help us avoid the storms, but that he is present to us in the midst of them. And because of his presence, we will be different. After all, the reason that we engage in singing and in liturgy and engage the scriptures week after week is to give us the courage to trust that we are not alone, that Jesus is with us in the storm. We sing these songs every week together to remind each other that God is with us and that the way that God chooses to love us is with a perfect love that casts out fear. Jesus doesn't stop the storms from coming, but by his grace, he's already with us in the boat when they come. As I've been reflecting on this passage all week, I've been wondering how it is that Jesus might actually have wanted his disciples to respond. I've been trying to guess the subtext of his question. Is it surprise? Is it accusation? Is it disappointment when he says, do you still have no faith? When storms hit out of the blue and when chaos starts to come in, if you're anything like me, you do two things. First thing is you try to smart your way out of it. You, you try to think of all the things that you can do to construct a strategy that you know is going to be threatened by stuff that is way beyond your control, but you, you have to do something. I'm reminded of a conversation I had last year with Jeff Ashby. He's a member here and a professor of psychology at GSU. And he mentioned the idea that when we think about our mental state, uh, when trouble starts to press in as like a continuum of, of concern to worry, 
to uh, you know, attention, to concern, to worry, to anxiety. And the line that separates helpful and healthy activity from unhealthy activity is that line where productive action ceases. When you've done all that you can and there's nothing else to do, when all of the production, productive action is done and when the skies get dark, you, you steer your ship the best that you can in the midst of the storm. And, and Jesus seems to expect this from his disciples. That's why he's asleep out on the cushion when the storm starts. But then at least for me, after all that you've done that you can, after you've exhausted all of that productive action, all you can do is worry. And I just sit and I stew on all the problems. I lose sight. I start to think about the things that I can't control. I start to worry about the future, which is always way beyond my control. And this kind of worry that creeps in when you spend all of your mental energy trying to prevent the things that are going to pull you apart and all the things that you have tried really hard to build up. Well, that baggage just ends up becoming the thing that weighs you down. And only perfect love can throw it overboard. After Jesus brings peace to the storm, he asks his disciples that question, but then they ask him another one. And this is the question that Mark wants us to walk away with. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the reason that Mark wants us to walk away with this question is that it's the one that our trust hangs on. It's the question that every generation needs to answer for itself, that there is more to Jesus than we can ever possibly know. And that means that he's not just a source of inspiration for your life. He is not just a, a call to social justice or a call to moral action. He is the very presence of God. He has come to bring the reign and the rule of heaven over all the earth. And that means that he is the king over your illnesses, over your circumstances, over all of the anxieties that keep you awake at night. He himself is our peace, and he has come to be with you whether you recognize him or not. As near as we can figure, Mark came to be written a few decades after the resurrection. In and among a community of believers in Rome at a time when this early community of Jesus was experiencing intense persecution, imprisonment, and death. And, and Mark, no doubt, wants the disciples of his day to look back and see resonances with the disciples in the boat with Jesus that when these storms and when these chaos comes, despite what you might feel, because these feelings are always deceptive, Jesus is not far off. He is not numb. He is not aloof to your pain. He is just a few feet away resting with you to the end. And the invitation for all of us is it's okay to wake him up. It's okay in our anxiety, in our fear, in our doubt, in our anger to call out. Just do not expect Jesus to be anxious with you. Expect him be ready to speak peace. See, maybe it was really the disciples who were asleep during the storm. Because not only did they have each other, but they had Jesus with them. But that's what our anxious stirrings do to us. We get drowsy and we start to sleepwalk through life unaware of God's presence with us. 
But in his mercy, Jesus wakes them up to something that can only be revealed when we live out of control, and that is that he cares, that he is present with us, speaking peace into our storms. It's our story, whether we realize it or not, storms are going to kick up. And he does not form peace in his disciples by avoiding these storms, but by seeking God's presence in the midst of them. And so in the end, this is really just an invitation to trust. To trust just like Jesus trusted, asleep, in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the storm, resting in the peace and shalom of the Father's presence. It's an invitation for you and I to do the same. It's no ordinary passenger that we have with us. He has the power to bring peace. And now as we come to the table, we remember that when Jesus endured the cross, he called out to his Father to have that storm pass from his life. As he was in the agony of the garden, he drew near to the Father's presence and found the peace necessary to face the cross that was before him. And so as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God.